If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Napoleon Bonaparte was a charismatic leader a brilliant military tactician, and an inveterate art thief. In fact, one of the things he did once his armies had occupied a rival state was to dispatch a team of officials to plunder its treasures. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Cynthia Saltzman, the author of Napoleon's Plunder and the Theft of Veronese's Feast, reveals what fired the French leader's obsession with looting some of Europe's great masterpieces and spiriting them back to the Louvre. Cynthia, your new book looks at Napoleon Bonaparte's conquest of Europe from a a fascinating perspective, and that's his proclivity for plundering great works of art from the occupied nations and taking them back to Paris to display in the Louvre. Now, you base the book around Napoleon's appropriation of a painting called The Wedding Feast at Cana by Paolo Veronese, which had hung in the refectory of a Venetian church since it was painted in 1563. Now, 
Why did you choose to focus on this particular artwork? Well, first of all, the, the wedding feast at Cana, um, which was painted by Paolo Veronese in 1563, is an absolute masterpiece. And it's to me, it was um, it's a huge painting. It was absolutely it was emblematic of Napoleon's whole art plundering project. He wanted masterpieces and he was ruthless in getting them. And paradoxically, by focusing on this one Veronese, I could explain not only the significance of this work to the history of art, but then I could explain the meaning of its loss to Venice and also its importance to Paris and its importance to French art. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this artwork? What did it depict? Well, it depicted a biblical feast. The wedding feast at Cana is Jesus's first miracle when he changes water into wine. And But the amazing thing about the picture is that Veronese sets this biblical feast in on a terrace in his own 16th century Venice. And it's huge. It has, because it covered the entire end wall of the refectory, has 130 figures, many life-size. And he Veronese dresses them in the silks and other fabrics for which Venice was famous. And what's wonderful about the picture is the, his use of color, his brilliant use of color, and the Venetians were famous for color, but also the illusion of reality. So it appears as though this scene is taking place in front of the viewer, and also in the details, he's amazing, but he creates the appearance or the illusion of brocade and light playing over it. Within your book, you, you cite the quote, Everywhere, Veronese impresses with the virtuosity of his performance, the absolute mastery of oil paint. Now, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Paolo Veronese. I mean, he, was, he was obviously a hugely respected artist at his time. Yes, he was one of the three great 16th century Venetian artists, Titian, Tintoretto, Veronese. He came from Verona. That's why his name is, he called, is called Veronese. And his, his first, he, he moved to Venice in 1555, and he really established himself with a major commission in the Doge's Palace, the government seat, on the ceiling. And he, he paints a picture of Jupiter expelling the vices. It's an allegorical painting. And the, but the thing is, it makes it look as though these huge figures are falling from the sky. So... He once he showed the Venetians that he got many other commissions, first for ceiling paintings, and also it's painted in these beautiful, brilliant Venetian colors. So in 1562, when the abbot of San Giorgio Maggiore was selecting an artist to paint this biblical feast in the monastery's refectory, he selected Veronese because by that time he was running a large workshop and he had many commissions. And he really established himself in Venice. Now, returning to Napoleon, can you give us an idea of the scale of his appropriation of, of great artworks across Europe? I mean, how many masterpieces did he plunder and, and over how many years? Well, this, the scale was, was vast. The scale of his plundering was vast. He starts in his very first campaign in Italy, and um, this is when he took the Veronese. He's only 26, and... What's fascinating is as he races across northern Italy, conquering various Italian states, he was fighting the Austrians, conquering state, Italian states that were either neutral or allied with the Austrians. He forces 
these uh, states that he defeats into putting works of art into the terms of their peace treaties. And then he would go on later when he's the emperor of France or emperor of the French to plunder Germany and Austria and not so successfully Spain. And then he also, um, his the, the head of the Louvre would go back to Italy at the very end of, in, in um, 1811 and 1812 and 13. So it was vast, the plundering was vast in Italy and this, um, ultimately they would take some 500 works of art just from Italy and only about half of them have gone back. And just to put it, but it's in context. I mean, had conquering armies plundered art- artistic treasures in the past? Was Napoleon the first to do this? No, pl- art plundering really dates, has had a long, long history, dating back to ancient times with the Romans, at, at least. In the 17th century, Queen Christina of Sweden famously plundered the art of Rudolf II when her armies invaded Prague. But in the 18th century, this had become, partly because of the Enlightenment influence, this was no longer the norm. So the French, during the French Revolution, um, when, the, when France was at war with Austria, and they had victories, and the French had victories in the Austrian Netherlands, they plundered the works of art in Antwerp, these fabulous Rubens, Rubens altarpieces, and that started it up again, really. And Napoleon followed that policy that had been started under the reign of terror. But I think he really made it his own. So he did it on a a larger scale to anything that had gone before then? He did. It was on a vast scale, larger than anything that had gone before. And how much of a a logistical operation was it to get these masterpieces back to France? I mean, what, what were the mechanics of appropriating the artworks? Well, it was a very complicated and difficult operation and high risk. And just this painting alone, this Veronese's wedding feast, was they had to get it down from the wall. It covered the whole wall, 33 feet wide, 22 feet high. And it was attached to the wall of, it was attached to a stretcher, which was attached to the wall. So they had to get the nails out of the periphery. They pulled out the nails. And then there were also three rows of nails running across the entire front of the canvas. So when they pulled this painting down, these nails ripped through the canvas and made holes across the entire painting. They then um, wrapped it around a cylinder. It was the first of five paintings they put around the cylinder, put it into a crate, loaded the crate onto ship, and had it sail down the Adriatic and across the Mediterranean to France. What do you think fired Napoleon's fascination with the art of the Renaissance? I mean, to what extent would, would he have been aware of great artworks as a young a young man growing up in 18th century France? Well, that's a great question. He was no connoisseur of art. And yet I think the important thing is that he understood that the French kings had used art and architecture to aggrandize themselves, to build their political power, the image of their political power, and he would do exactly the same. So what what exactly was he trying to say to himself, to his fellow, his fellow countrymen and the world, by plundering all these works of art. I mean, what image was he trying to project of himself? I think he was trying to project an image of power, but also uh, in the book, I explain that the Louvre is his collaborator because he is plundering not technically for himself, but for the Republic of France and all the destination of all these works of art is the Louvre. 
the Louvre, only three years before Napoleon's Italian campaign, had been, it had been at the Great Palace of the French Kings. It was taken over by the revolutionaries during the Reign of Terror, and part of it was turned into a museum. And they filled that museum with the art of the French king that they had taken from Versailles. And so um, in putting this plundered art in the Louvre and showing it to a wide public, not just France, but European public, and the museum's purpose was education, in a way he could link this plundering to the aims of the Enlightenment. Yes, that that actually takes me on to my next question, because you write that the plunder of art reflected the worst and best of Napoleon's character. Now, I wonder if you could expand on both of those, because I I guess it's easy to see why this reflects the worst of his character, but what do you mean specifically when you write that it reflects the best of his character? I think what I mean is that he he was interested in, in the aims of the Enlightenment, in showing art to the public, but also he was interested in gene, you know, in masterpieces as measures of civilization. And uh, I say, I think that it, it reflected his desire for greatness and glory, but also his ruthlessness in trying to get whatever he wanted, no matter what the cost, a cost that often tainted that greatness and glory. I mean, with a lot of these masterpieces being seen by a lot more people as a result of what he did? Yes, absolutely they were. Um, and they were all seen together. The way they they um, exhibited it, them at the Louvre was that they organized it in an art, historic, art historically. So you'd understand the history of art. They put the paintings together by school, also chronologically. And they, they in the Grand Gallery of the Louvre, which ran between the Louvre, it was a quarter of a mile long, ran between the Louvre and the Tuileries. They had some 900 paintings. So it was very, it was a very dazzling sight. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He clearly understood the power of art. And when Antoine Gros painted his portrait in Italy, he immediately recognized that this was a brilliant portrait. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How much of a psychological blow did taking this art deal to places like Venice, the other cities in which she was taking the art from. I mean, it must be really demoralising for for these cities, these countries losing their great masterpieces. I think that's what he understood. It, it, and that's why, in some ways, he uses this as a, wep- as a weapon of war. He understood the psychological damage that, in a way, you could continue the victory into the future. And, for instance, the king of, I mean, the Duke of Parma, Parma was famous for its Correggio's. Correggio is its most celebrated artist. And the victory at Parma, Parma's not such a powerful state, but when they take away the Correggio's, which is one of the reasons that people, people, artists from all over, not only from France, but from the United States, came, went to Parma to see those Correggio's. And the Duke afterwards tried for several months to, to have the French revise the terms of the treaty because, of course, um, the artworks are not like, you know, it's much more damaging than taking just money. Did he face opposition from other countries as well? I mean, what, what, what did the people of Britain make of what he was doing? The fascinating thing was, well, other countries thought it was terrible. Even the French themselves, some, a, a group of French artists signed a petition asking the French not to take the antiquities from the Vatican and Rome. They said Rome is the capital, the art capital of Europe. This is, and the argument was also, if you remove these antiquities from Rome, you will lose the context. They will be out of context and nobody will understand them. Then, of course, when they, people, visitors, foreigners went to the Louvre, many of them were dazzled or conflicted. Why did he choose to display these artworks in the Louvre? I mean, can you, you've, You've, you've obviously talked about Louvre a, a bit, a little bit earlier, but can you can you tell us a bit about this great public museum? Would it be fair to say that Napoleon's plundering of Renaissance art turned the Louvre into one of Europe's great cultural powerhouses? I'd say that it is fair to say that. First, for the French, the Louvre represented, you know, because it had been the palace of the French kings, but now it was a public museum. It was a great symbol of democracy and of the French Republic. And when Napoleon added all these plundered works, I think it really came to represent the military might of the French Republic, but also its cultural power. In 1802, after the Peace of Amiens, the British flocked and other foreigners flocked to Paris and they said the main event is the Louvre. And I think it's, it did, he did succeed. Napoleon did succeed in 
in transferring the art capital of Europe from Rome to Paris. And then, as it was so famously put, Paris became the capital of the 19th century. So to what extent did the arrival of these works of art in Paris influence French artists? I mean, were all these famous paintings of Napoleon as conqueror and emperor, were they shaped by the art of the Renaissance and the artworks that he brought back to Paris? They absolutely were from the very beginning. That's what's so fascinating. This wedding, Veronese's wedding feast, it was very influential on Antoine Gros, for instance. He was commissioned by Napoleon to do a very difficult painting of Napoleon on when in Egypt, a heroic moment when he's visiting the plague victims at Jaffa. Um, but the Egyptian campaign had gone very badly. So it was a difficult commission. Napoleon wanted a propaganda picture, but Gros paint, painted something more, much more complex and really a great picture. And immediately the director of the Louvre, when, when Gros put this painting up, it, when it was exhibited at the Salon, he wrote, the director wrote to Napoleon and said, now the French can, can stand with the Venetians. And he talked about the atmosphere, the, the great, the beauty of the chiaroscuro, and Gros was clearly influenced in the, not only the complexity of the picture, but the, the color and the way he used his brushwork. But later, um, the Delacroix, many people, cop, many artists, French artists copied this painting. De, the great colorist Delacroix made copies of the paint of the Veronese. Then Cezanne made copies of the painting. And then Van Gogh wrote about it when he's writing to his brother about his very modern theory of color. He actually does this when he's writing about the Veronese. And what happens at a wedding feast at Cannes after Napoleon's death? Where is it now? It's in the Louvre, and it's in a room, and it faces the Mona Lisa. And what happened was that when, after Wellington and the Allies defeated Napoleon at Waterloo, they made the decision that... He should that the French king, whom, whom they just put on the throne, should send back all the works of art that Napoleon had stolen from his enemies and were in the Louvre. But the Austrians were in control of Venice at that time. So it was up to the Austrians to get the painting back. And the French curator, when the Austrians came to the Louvre to tell the um, director, pack up the pictures for Venice, the French curator immediately wrote a letter saying if the Austrians try to move this Veronese's wedding feast, they risk damage and possibly destruction. That letter or that memo went to the Austrian emperor and he was leaving Paris that day. So he had no time to really think about it and he agreed to let the French keep it. If you visit the Louvre today, I mean, are, are, are these artworks, are they in evidence everywhere you go in the Louvre? I mean, are they very prominent in the museum today? Oh, it's fascinating. Well, in this room with the, where the Veronese hangs across from the Mona Lisa, it's called the Salle des Etats. There are other, there's the great Jupiter that he did for the ceiling of the Doge's palace and um, another and several others from Venice. And actually what's amazing is in, and others are in the Grand Gallery, is to see these Italian paintings are still at the heart of the Louvre. Only a few galleries away, are some of the French paintings, the Delacroix, the David, whose coronation was influenced by this Veronese. So it's very interesting to see 
the Napoleonic history right near, right in only a few galleries away from the um, wedding feast and these other paintings that are still there. During your research for this book, what did you learn about Napoleon as a, as a character? What was the, the, the two or three things you really took away from him about what made Napoleon tick? Well, one of the things, I mean, he's completely brilliant. He's able to do many, many things at once. And in terms of the plundering, the way he puts the works of art in the terms of the treaty in Italy, in the terms of these peace treaties, he's only 26. And from the very beginning, this art plundering was on his mind. He's only in Italy. He's only just reached Italy. And he sends a letter to the French ambassador in Genoa. And he says, send me a list of paintings and sculpture of, and and then he lists several of the states that he plans to conquer. So he's always ahead of the game, always thinking ahead. And yet also, um, as I said, his ruthlessness, he really wanted art to serve him. And so when he, he gets married for the second time, to Marie-Louise of Austria, the Austrian princess, and he has the wedding in the Louvre, one of the wedding ceremonies in the Louvre, in the um, Salon Carré, where at that time the Veronese was hanging. And he goes there, he's, and he, he tells the head of the Louvre, Vivant Donant, that he wants it moved, move all these paintings, because he wants to put um, stands along on the uh, along the walls so that there can be lots of people there. Vivant Donat says we we really can't shouldn't move this painting. It's very difficult, dangerous. He says I don't care, move it, and it gets moved. Did he ever give us an insight into which of all these artworks he liked the most? Did Did he have a particular favorite? That's that's very interesting. I think what's interesting is that he was he clearly understood the power of art and when. Antoine Gros painted his portrait in Italy. He immediately recognized that this was a brilliant portrait. This is one of the very first portraits. He's, it's an idealized portrait. He's a young general in the smoke of battle. And he immediately paid Gros to have prints of it made, i.e. reproductions. I think that the, the, what's interesting is that he, I think you could say maybe that the, the one he really singled out were the ho- four horses, the four gilded bronze horses of Venice. Because at first, the terms of the treaty with Venice were that he, the commission, he had a commission that chose the works of art for him, that the commission could take 20 paintings. And they write him a letter and they say, wait a minute. Maybe we should just take 16 paintings. And there are these, they say, there are four sculptures. And they're talking about these beautiful gilded bronze horses that the Venetians had actually plundered from Constantinople in 1204. And they were over the entrance of the Basilica of St. Mark. So in the most prominent place in Venice. Now, Napoleon doesn't, or I couldn't, don't know if there's a letter. He doesn't seem to respond to them. So they actually take 20 works of art from Venice. But later, several months later, he orders his chief of staff to take these four horses and pack them up and send them to France. And then he puts these four horses on an arch of triumph that he has built to celebrate Austerlitz right in front of the Tuileries Palace, which is his residence. Why do you think Napoleon's plundering of these artworks is something we should know more about? Why, why, do, you think, why do you think this is such a fascinating part of European history? 
Well, it's a part of European history. I mean, it's part of Europe's great legacy, these works of art. And the French have always looked to the to Italian art, first the antiquities, but also Italian paintings to set the standards. And the Louvre is still, arguably, you know, one of the greatest museums in the world. And it set them, it was the model for many other museums in the early 19th century. After Napoleon's defeat, Berlin and in Madrid and Amsterdam all had started their own national museums. And they were inspired by the Louvre to a certain extent. Absolutely inspired by the Louvre. That was Cynthia Saltzman. Napoleon's Plunder and the Theft of Veronese's Feast is out now published by Thames and Hudson. You can find plenty more on Napoleon on our website. Just head to historyextra.com forward slash Napoleon. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow when Mark Morris will be busting myths about the Anglo-Saxons. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.